Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that you work amongst us and in us today as we focus on your indwelling presence that you might uh, make that real and we might even sense it and we can believe it and know it because you've said it. But sometimes we need a little more encouragement to appropriate the things that you have given to us. So we pray that today we would not only enjoy it, but uh, be able to set our minds and our thoughts on who you are and what you have done on our behalf. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, in fact, I think probably a new believer last century or so, I heard a story that I think is appropriate to the passage that we're looking at, a story of a family that lived in West Texas, Permian Basin, very poor family, scraped descendants, barely made a living on the land there, desolate, obviously, even more desolate than New Mexico. And they uh, lived on that land for several generations. And then in the certain generation, they found out that they had oil on that land. And the descendants obviously had the oil rights. And all along, they were very rich, just didn't know it. And by not knowing it, could not appropriate it until that generation. I think a lot of Christians live that way, not knowing the resource that that we have. Some know it and are, for whatever reason, unable to appropriate it. And the passage we're going to look at today deals with the issue of indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's our resource, greater than any oil that you might discover on your land. In fact, greater than anything that you could ever imagine. So when we speak of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, as this passage is going to focus, once we get past 5 through 8, I'm intending to get into at least part of verses 9 through 11, where that's the focus there. But in that portion, when we think of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we need to focus on Holy Spirit is God. God indwells us. In fact, we're going to look at a couple of passages related to that. The creator of all things, the one that put the heavens up in the sky, the one that created every star, the hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, the hundred billion galaxies in the universe, he indwells us. So we have great riches that are available and all of the power that built all those stars, we have access to that. So we're going to look at the flesh versus the spirit. And just like that family that were rich over those generations, but did not know it and did not appropriate it, generally we live as if we're spiritual poppers in the flesh. It's kind of the default mode. You all have computers. Default mode is a certain font size, certain font that you have, and it stays that way unless you take steps to change the font. Similarly, when we wake up in the morning, we wake up in that default mode. So one of the reasons you have a quiet time, one of the reasons that you do, in fact, want to focus early is to change the default mode from flesh to spirit. 
So Paul is writing to Romans that had the same issues, same problems. In fact, the church has been plagued with the same problems ever since Adam. In fact, that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. So Roman people that lived there, Roman temple that dates to the time of the first century, and then a church was built inside of it much later. So there's kind of two different architectures there, two different eras, two different time frames. Colosseum, remember that? You know what that is now. You know what it is now, right? <laughs> you, have a better, you have a better idea. That's it. That was under construction in the time that Paul lived. And that's an aerial view of the same site. And I show them just to remind us that what Paul wrote years, years ago, 2,000 years ago, because it's inspired has direct application to us today. So we can read the scriptures as if they were written to us because, in fact, God designed it that way. and God intended that we view them in that way. So Romans deals with issues that are timeless, essentially. We've talked about justification, and we're looking at sanctification 6 through 8. We've completed looking at the major principles continue to develop principles, but seven focuses on the problems, kind of laying the groundwork for chapter eight that focuses on power available to overcome those human frailties, those problems, those human distortions that we all wake up every morning with. So we're looking at verses one through 11. It's possible we might even complete them. 1 through 8, power over sinful flesh. One of the most important passages in all of Scripture that give us the, the way, the, the design that God has designed for us to live the Christian life. And we live in an in, in important era in Bible history. In fact, things kind of grow in time in terms of what God is doing with the universe. And we're going to develop a little of that today. So we've looked at verses 1 through 4. We are free from condemnation. And remember, the believer is free in two senses. And a lot of theologians confuse the first sense. We are free as far as eternity is concerned. No matter what we do, there's therefore now no condemnation. But this passage because it's in this portion, because of the context, there's a second aspect that applies to the believer as well, and this is what I think 8.1 tells us. There is therefore no condemnation even when we live in the flesh. And what we mean is if we would just take a step away out of the flesh into the spirit, we can escape a lot of the consequences of what God has designed in terms of living in the flesh. So there's freedom from condemnation. Now, the other side of the coin, there also obviously are those consequences that sometimes God allows that in order to refine us, uses them as discipline. So the basic thing is there's freedom from condemnation, and verse 4 leads us to the idea that there's another option. Mary Lee? I was going to just say that there is a big difference from discipline to change our behavior 
and wrath poured on, out upon us to punish us. And so, so we need to realize that as yep. children of God, when we have trust, placed our trust in Him, we can experience discipline, and it will not be pleasant. But we are completely free from the wrath, from wrath. of God that is going to be poured out. Yes, very well. And, and we need to know that because it's easy to say, oh, my parents hit me in the ground. You know, no, your parents are trying to change a behavior in you. Right. But that's completely different it, than being sentenced. You are foul. You are simply being excluded. And we need to be aware of that for our own lives as well yes. as... That good, that good distinction. We're never going to experience the wrath of God poured out upon us. That's right. And there is a distinction. Very good. Good clarification there. And we're free. In other words, free from that condemnation. Yes, we are no. The unbeliever is under wrath, under that condemnation. And unless he trusts in Jesus Christ, he will experience the full effect of that condemnation eternally. So there's some principles that we've already looked at from verse 4. There's power of the Holy Spirit in order to do those things that God does require that God has called us to do. The fulfillment of the law. So there's power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the focus first four verses. Another principle, walking in the Spirit is the means of sanctification. That is the only means by which God can change us. And we've seen from chapter 7, he doesn't change the old nature. The old nature, in fact, continues to degenerate, continues to become more depraved even. And the sad thing is as believers, we still carry that old nature and it'll stay with us until we go to be with the Lord. The difference is we have a new nature, and it's through the new nature. We've seen that, and I think that's part of what verses 1 through 4 are talking about. So walking in the Spirit is the means by which we are sanctified and the means by which God changes us, conforms us more to his image. So that's what we're going to continue looking at. And the battle, Paul starts off, verse 5. We've seen this over and over and over. We saw it throughout chapter 6. We saw it at the end of chapter 7. I gave you the verses last time. And we looked at verse 5 last time. And just a quick review here. For those who are according to the flesh, there's only two ways to live the Christian life, either in the flesh or in the spirit. There's no in-between, one or the other. Those who are according to the flesh, they have a certain mindset. And this is all the unbeliever has. He can't change. In other words, he doesn't have another option. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. And I gave you bunches of examples of where that manifests itself. It manifests itself every day. Gave you some broad categories, but just individual decisions. Depending on how you view things. In other words, how are you looking at this circumstance at this moment? How do I respond to this situation today, at this hour, this minute? A mindset. That's why we study the Word, not to gain brownie points before God. Oh, you're you're such a good Christian, you're reading the Bible. That's legalism. We do it in order that we can renew our thinking and that we can be reminded as we face difficulty, 
as we face that, we have a different mindset. Now we're going to approach things differently. And I gave you that silly example last time. I'm not going to replay it. I think you remember it very vividly. So the flesh has a certain mindset. And the word there, by the way, it's kind of, it, it's like a worldview word. It's, it, it's not directly related, but it has this, it's not the word for mind. It's a different word that has more the idea your, your orientation in life, your approach to life. The way that you set your thinking off and you head in that direction as a result of that whole thought pattern. So it's not just one thought. It's kind of your orientation and your approach. So they set their minds in a different pattern, a different way, the unbeliever does, than the believer. But the sad thing is if we remain in default mode, then this is where our minds stay, unless we reorient. But we have another option. Believer only has another option. But those who are according to the Spirit, and that's the focus here, those that walk in the Spirit, God has broken that bondage. And now we have a different option. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And the verb goes back. The setting of your minds, in other words, those According to the Spirit, who set their minds on the thing, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Totally different orientation. But if you don't know the Word, and if you're not in the Word, and you don't remind yourself of the Word, then you don't have a resource to reorient. You're kind of empty-headed, if you will. You're, you're, you need to renew that thinking. And the examples I gave you last time, mindsets, And these are just examples, kind of broad examples. The world sets their minds on their men, on their jobs, their careers. That's kind of what we, our default thought, you know, our our preoccupation. How am I going to make money? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to do all these things? How am I going to advance in my career? All these things. That's the worldly mindset. The believer should also be concerned about career, but he has a different mindset, a different idea, different orientation, different reason for it. How can this career advance the ministry that God had given me? Maybe this career opens doors for mission work. In other words, my job is my mission field. Or how does this income that I have, how can I utilize it to support people that are actually out in the field? Different mindset, different reason for for career. It's not selfish, self-centered, in that everything that I do now is to advance and get to the top position. I can still advance and get to the top position, but now that gives me more resources, more influence, more ability to be able to support whatever God is doing in my life or in the life of others. Kind of men first, women second here. Preoccupation with the home. Nice home. There's nothing wrong with cleanliness and attractiveness and flowers and all the other. But is it, well, I want to stay one step ahead of the Joneses next door. That's the flesh. That's the mindset. That's a different orientation, different motivation. That's what he's talking about, mindset. No, I want to have a beautiful home that my family can enjoy and and my husband can come home as a refuge and and my neighbors can come and we can be more hospitable to them and it's a better environment to share the gospel with them. Totally different orientation. Totally different mindset. 
materialism. The unbeliever generally is trying to make as much money as he can in order to buy enough toys to try to satisfy that inward emptiness. So we strive and strive and strive for more money. Well, God makes believers rich sometimes. In fact, I know a few of them. You know some as well. But their orientation is different. God has made them rich, but they are building in their lives eternal treasures, and they're investing some of those riches in order to advance some of those eternal concepts. In fact, uh, when I became a new believer here in Albuquerque, I got to meet some of the people that were financing things like Young Life and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. These were men that were very wealthy, and they decided that they wanted to use that wealth to build in Albuquerque organizations that would promote eternal ideas. Different mindset, different orientation. Worldly mindset, that's kind of what we focus in on, entertainment or whatever else is going around, as opposed to spending time in the Word, as opposed to being involved in Bible studies, or opposed to preparing to teach a Bible study, those sort of things, spiritual pursuits. Pleasing self, that's our natural bent, it's our orientation, rather than what do others need, rather than self-focus, focusing on needs of others. And the list goes on and on and on and on. These are just general categories to give you examples of different orientations, different mindsets. Those in the flesh, temporal, worldly, present. Those in the spirit have a biblical, a godly orientation. And that comes from the renewing of one's mind. So six through eight, we have the results of that mindset, the two. And he's going to focus on the negative, kind of emphasize we need to get out of that. And there's a way to do that. So six through eight, and I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it's pretty, well, I'll spend time on the first one. And then we'll move a little bit more quickly. For the mindset on the flesh is death, is death. And how has Paul been using this concept of death all the way, in fact, all through Book of Romans, but particularly chapter 5, verse 12, and all those chapters up to chapter 8, and including this one here? It's a comprehensive. That's the word I've been using, in a comprehensive sense. In other words, he's not talking about ceasing to breathe. He's not talking about second death. He's not talking about eternity here. In other words, those who set their minds on the flesh, they're not, he's not saying they're going to lose their salvation. He's not saying this is true, but that's not what he's saying here. In other words, the unbeliever does face an eternity of separation from God, but the death he's talking about is here and now. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about growing, and your life can be dead because it has nothing of spiritual value. And just to remind you, I've been using the Genesis 3. We haven't used it in a while. So just to remind you, this is the comprehensive death that he's talking about. Death that touches all of who we are. Remember these? Starts with spiritual. And in Genesis 3, we have a vivid kind of picture that God presents to us with Adam and Eve. After they sin, the first thing that they do is what? They hide. They are separated from God. So death includes the spiritual. And Ephesians 2.1 says the unbeliever, or speaking of the Ephesians in the past tense, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. 
They were breathing, their hearts were beating, they were walking about, but they were dead. And what I, I think the focus is spiritual death. So obviously it's spiritual, and the essence of that is separation from God. So Adam and Eve leave God. They, they're trying to hide from him. It has an intellectual aspect, the darkening of the minds. We saw that. So their minds are darkened. Theologically, you see that in Adam and Eve. How do you escape or how do you hide from an omniscient, ever-present or omnipresent God? How do you do that? Well, you do that because your mind is twisted. There's no way to do that. How do you hide from God? There's no way to hide from God. Does that make sense? You can't hide. So their minds are already on a wrong thinking path. So death is intellectual as well. The mind is affected with Adam and Eve's sin. And the unbeliever has no other option than have dead thoughts. There are thoughts that are not eternal thoughts. Morality, the first shame. We have shame in verse 7 as well. They both hide because they're ashamed. So there's a, there's a moral aspect. Moral deadness. And Romans 7 stresses the idea that we can't... There's nothing good in the flesh. There's no resource there to do real good things. It's emotional. They, verse 10, it affects the emotions. Spiritual deadness. First time, they have fear. Their emotions are affected. This is the comprehensive sense of death. Make sense? It even affects relationships. That's social, 11 and 12. The man blames the woman. The woman blames something else. So the relationship between Adam and Eve is broken. Social effects, social death. Relationships are broken. Blame. And just to kind of illustrate it here, just a little cartoon. <laughs> Adam and Eve there, will you please pick up all your clothes? Fig leaves. <laughs> it also has effects on life purpose. In other words, why are we here? The unbeliever has no clue why they're here. Because they're dead to it. They have no idea why God created them. In fact, in their minds, they think they come from primates even. So your purpose is damaged. And we saw that vividly in Genesis chapter 3, particularly 17 and 18, where the creation that they were to be sovereign over now is going to rebel against them like they rebelled against God. And I make the point that physical death In the day that you eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall, Jeremy? Surely die dead. Die dead. (laughs) Hebrew infinitive absolute. You shall die dead or certainly die absolute certainty. And the point I make is the moment, the nanosecond that they sinned, they started to die. Like they died cells began to deteriorate and die. And not only that, now they experience all the effects of death, pain, and suffering, and everything that follows in that. Yes, it took 930 years later for Adam to cease breathing, but he was dying from that moment all the way till he stopped the beating of his heart. So that's Genesis 3. Oh, excuse me. The psychological justification. Say that again? Justification. Justifying their action. Oh, yeah, yeah, they justified their action. We can include that. That's what um, Glenn said. If he didn't provide that at the 
ourselves. We wouldn't. Because we're guilty. Yeah. We have to justify all the time. Yeah, rationalize. Rationalize. Right. Yeah, that's part of it as well. Yeah, that's just a partial list, so you can add to it. But notice Romans 3. In fact, turn to it. It's not just Genesis, but notice when Paul is describing what deadness looks like. He's, he's describing the unbeliever in Genesis chapter 3. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Romans. Romans 3. Here. What did I say? Genesis? Sorry about that. Romans 3. In fact, some of you read it. Jeremy, since you've got it real quick there, uh, everybody got it? I'll have you guys kind of go down the row there. Jeremy, read verse 10. 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even... Kind of a general description of the unbeliever. There's not... Amongst all of humanity, there's none righteous. That's why he's building up to develop the idea that we have a need for righteousness and a need for a savior. That unrighteous state is what Ephesians describes as deadness. And now he's going to expand that. So... We start with the spiritual, just like what we had in Genesis. So Romans 3.10, none righteous. That's what deadness is. Separation from God. Do you have the next one? Nope. Bill, do you have 11? Oh, yeah. Thank you in my weird translation. Bill's got it. We'll get to you. There's no one who understands. There's no one who sees God. Okay, there's none who understands. What is that? Intellectual deadness. Intellectual deadness. None who understands. The unbeliever cannot see spiritual things. There's a lot of parallels here with Genesis. And he also, there's a second thing. There's none who seeks for God. Did Adam and Eve seek for God? No, they were hiding from him. And everyone, every descendant after them has been hiding from God, running from God. There's none who seeks after God. So we could say the will is affected. The will, the human will is damaged. And there's deadness. None seeks him. Mary Lee, do you want to do uh, 12? All have turned aside. Together they have been worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. Notice the emphasis here. There's none in all of humanity. Now, he's talking about the unbeliever here. And Paul in chapter 6 is saying that the same characteristic as the flesh. It's dead comprehensively, okay? What does that deal with? It deals with spiritual things. Well, it does. It it deals with the the focus of your mind. Well, verse 11 stresses that, but all have turned aside. This is, these are decisions. Yeah, the focus of your mind. Decisions. And all of them, what does he say? One word in there, but the whole description adds to it. Uh, They become useless. There's none who does good. Not even one. So the flesh is useless. This is a description of the unbeliever, but it's also a description of the believer living in the flesh. A useless life. Produces nothing. And verse, let's see, 14, 13 and 14. You get that one? Yeah, two of them. The throat is an open tube. Notice the imagery. I put them together because the imagery goes together. Read it. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Okay, you see how it all goes together? Just piling one image after another image, but it all relates to what? What else is dead in the unbeliever and in the flesh? Moral. Well, no. 
you, you're on the right track. Our words are communication. Ah, uh, what comes out of our mouths? It comes deep down through our throats, under our lips. Speaking of communication, and even the the descriptive words there, you know, mouth full of cursing and bitterness. That's the flesh. It's putrid. Kind of my summarization of it. And what do we have in 15, and I think 15 through 17? Junko, you want to read that long passage? Repeat our sushet blood. Destruction and mystery are in in the way they have not known. Okay. What does that summarize? It's more than decisions. Actions, very good. 15 through 17, and they're destructive. Destruction. That's a description of deadness. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 6. Destruction. And then we need to read verse 18. This is his description of depravity. This is his description of of the state of the unbeliever. And I think Paul, in chapter 7, is saying we have that residing within us still. But because of what Christ has done, we have another option. That's the default mode is the flesh. You got that one, Sandy? You want to read 18? There's no fear of God before us. No fear of God. What does that deal with? How about emotions? <laughs> Similar to the fear that we had in Genesis, but here, fear of God. Adam and Eve feared God because they knew he's a God of justice as well. But in this case, they're so depraved, they have no fear of God. They live oblivious to things in the spirit. But the sad thing is we can go back to all of that. So all of those and a few others, and like I said, the Genesis list is not exhaustive, neither is this one. That's deadness. So in six, eight six, for the mindset on the flesh is death in that comprehensive sense. Our thinking is dead, our emotions are dead, our decisions are dead or useless. What we do is destructive, sometimes to ourselves, sometimes to those around us. That's what he's talking about here, that comprehensive sense of death. But we have an option, the mindset. There you go. There's the verb form of that same word. In other words, setting one's mind, orienting yourself. But the mindset on the spirit is the opposite of death. So you can go down all of those same categories and think of what Christ has done to reverse all of that. And that's what Christian growth is all about, reversing that deadness. So we can say in the Spirit, from Romans 3, this is what Paul, and you might add uh, now Romans 8, what Paul is saying reverses all of that. Spiritually, there's no condemnation because we have been declared righteous, as righteous as Jesus Christ. That's what we need to focus on. That's our mindset. There's no condemnation. God does not condemn us. Yes, we fail. Yes, we don't live up to what God would desire. Yes, we go back to that old way of life, but yet no condemnation. Romans 8.1. Intellectually, it's not in uh, chapter 8, but he's going to get to and hint at that. In fact, the, the different mindset kind of implies that you have to develop that mindset by renewing your mind, Ephesians 4. But in chapter 12, 
he talks about a renewing of the mind as well, verses 1 and 2. So there's an intellectual renewing that needs to come about. Our will, now we're oriented to what does God want? What's God's will? What does he desire that I do on this day? Decisions, now we walk by faith. Another phrase that speaks of walking in the spirit. We trust him. Trust him moment by moment. Not our own thoughts, our own ideas, and then go off on those ideas. Just going down the same categories that we looked at in chapter 3, but how chapter 8 radically affects it. So, so these are still out of Romans 3. Well, the categories are out of Romans 3, the dead categories, but now God has given life. And this is what life looks like. This is what eternal life here and now looks like. This is what walking in the Spirit looks like. Okay? Instead of all the putrid stuff that comes out of our mouths, now we can speak truth. Now we can speak God's Word. And those words can empower others and heal and encourage and strengthen others. And now we have a ministry of proclaiming the truth. And that's by walking in the Spirit. Our actions, now our actions have eternal value. Now the things that we do are going to go on into eternity because they're going to have eternal effects. That is the mindset or the orientation of the Spirit. Make sense? And then the last thing the text tells us, life and peace. Life and peace. That's in Romans 8, verse 6. Walking in the Spirit gives life that reverses all of the death. If we stay in the flesh, we stay in deadness. And we continue to feel the effects of that deadness. To reverse it, we need to walk in the Spirit. And he's going to give some reasons here, because the mindset, and real quickly, uh, very quickly, 7 and 8 here, because he's going to give us four things, reasons why, if we stay in the flesh, why it doesn't change. It's deadness. The first one, the mindset on the flesh, is hostile to God. That whole orientation, we're at war with God. We're going against the creator of the universe. So it's it's a no-brainer why we ha- we suffer. It's a no-brainer why we experience all the effects of deadness. So death's reasons, we're at war with God. What else do you expect? The one that gives life, we've rebelled. And we're fighting him. We're at war. Secondly, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. We're not concerned about what the word says. And in this case, the, the law, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant. I don't know why it's not capitalized, subject itself to the law of God. Probably should be capitalized like all the others. I just notice that. But let's not get sidetracked. There's a second reason. Not only are we at war with God, but we're in rebellion against his ways. The things he's revealed in his word, in his law. We're going in the opposite direction of what God would direct us. There's a third one. For it is not even able to do so. That's a summary of all of chapter 7. The flesh cannot do anything of eternal value. So put all of chapter 7 there. How many weeks did we spend in chapter 7? There's a summary of 7 or 8 weeks that we spent there. Linda was getting very tired of it. (laughs) Oh, you weren't? No capacity to do anything 
spiritual. No capacity. No ability. What did Paul say? There is nothing good in me, and the me there is a reference to my flesh, or me in the flesh. Remember all that? Remember the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is spiritual. The problem is with the flesh. It has no capability to do anything spiritual. It's deadness. And then verse 8, and those who are in the flesh, reiterating, cannot please God. Bottom line, cannot please God. So number four on your list, cannot please God. Couldn't think of a <laughs> another way of saying it. Stick to scripture, right? So four reasons why death is useless, basically, or why we are dead in the flesh, because we're at war with God, because we're going contrary to everything that he wants. Rebellion against the ways of God. So what do you expect other than deadness? And we have no capability to even change that. And the bottom line is we're displeasing to God. However, this is a good way to to end. Linda is going to jump for joy here. You are not in the flesh. You have a different option. Now, he's not saying... Don't read into this, oh, I'm not in the flesh anymore, right? I'm in the spirit, okay? That's reading more into the text than what is here because of everything he's already said up to chapter 8, verse 8. We're still plagued with the flesh, but in reality, from God's perspective, and this is the right mindset, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And now he's going to expand that resource and what it means to be in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is a very important verse. Dispensationally, this is a very important verse in terms of sanctification, and this is a very important verse in terms of us personally. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It goes against a common doctrine in some circles, this idea of a second blessing. Here is the, you know what I'm referring to, right? Here is the doctrinal statement that says that if anyone is in Christ or knows Christ or is trusted in Christ, the Spirit dwells in him. And there's no waiting for a second blessing. That was a temporary period of time between what God was doing in the early church to what is standard. This is what is standard. Every believer has the Spirit of God indwelling them, and every unbeliever does not. Tony? The if indeed, is that if you've heard in other places, it's actually, you could translate it, sin. Yes, very good. It's a first... It's not questioning. No. In fact, it's giving certainty. It's a first-class condition in the Greek. Yes, very good. Everybody catch that? No, I didn't. You could insert, if indeed, in other words, this is in fact true of you, because you are not not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In other words, the essence of who you are is you have the spirit indwelling you. And the if indeed gives certainty to it. This is... Connie said, and you could translate it with the word since, first class condition. Now, it's a different word, a different word for if, but it has the same idea, and it is a first class condition. Right, but in our reading of it, that 
that if indeed throws a question in. Yeah, in the English, it almost gives a, a little doubt. Yeah, in the Greek, no, no. In the Greek, emphasize the indeed. In other words, if and it's certain, indeed, it's true. Okay. So there's the indwelling presence of God, and this is radically different from the Old Testament. We've talked about this before. God dwelt in the tabernacle with the children of Israel after the Exodus, after they built the tabernacle. He chose to manifest his presence amongst the nation in the tabernacle. He manifested in a visible way, even, in a very dramatic and visible way, and you approached God with sacrifices before you could approach a holy and separate God. And then when the tabernacle was made permanent by building a temple, God did the same thing in that period of time. And then God destroyed it because of the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. So God manifested a presence. It was very selective. And in some cases, God indwelt kings, but the spirit could leave. Remember Saul, the spirit of God left Saul. And even David himself, after his sin of adultery and orchestrating the murder of Bathsheba's husband, even he prayed that God not take the spirit from him. That's dispensational. That's Old Testament. Because he saw what God did with Saul. All that has changed in the New Testament. And here's one of the key verses that indicates that in the New Testament. So prophets as well, they spoke filled with the Spirit. As they speak, they spoke the words of God, and there were others like judges and select individuals that were filled with the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling everyone that trusts in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 makes that clear. If you want other verses, this is probably a good place to... Let me go through a couple more slides and we'll stop today. Next week, we'll start with this and emphasize this indwelling presence of God because that is the resource that enables us to overcome whatever situation we find ourselves in. If we are trusting in him, we have resurrection power. We'll see that in verse 11. We didn't quite get to verse 11. But John 14, 16 through 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and there's many other passages that speak of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this is the unbeliever. If anyone does not, this is, this is how you define whether a person has salvation, how you define whether this person is a true, genuine, biblical Christian. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, he's not a child of God. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's not born again. All the phrases the Bible uses to describe those that are transferred from the uh, kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Okay? If Christ is in you, and we'll talk some more about that, what I'm going to get at here... Not only is the Holy Spirit in you, Christ is in you as well. 8.10. So we have the Holy Spirit in you. We have Christ in you. Now, we don't have it in this passage, but there's other passages that speak of even God the Father indwelling the believer. We have all of the Trinity indwelling us, and from that resource, we can draw from that 
to find power to live whatever circumstance God puts us in, such that no matter what experience we encounter, there's a resource available to deal with it. Who wants to close? Sure. Um, going back to that previous slide where we're talking about uh, the that one. Um, does not have the spirit of Christ. He does not belong to you. That's really hard because you see a lot of, and sometimes it's us walking. No, we have the spirit. We have that richness, those treasures, but we're not living. Yes, that's the flesh. And so we're. We still belong to him. Yes. I mean, it's not yes. like we've lost our salvation. Yeah, yeah. We're just not. Being Notice there's a difference here. If anyone does not have, we're talking about possession. Every believer has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But like you're saying, all of us sometimes don't display it because we're not. we're walking in that old pattern, that old orientation. Does that make sense? Yeah, just to heard the comment, um, you know, when someone dies at, at funerals and so on, that, well, did he know the Lord? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really seem to be walking that way. And, you know, it's like, you know, that's between God. That's you right. Have to know. That's of right. Of course, if it's a loved one, you would like to know. Right. But just, yeah. 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 But I think it's a clear statement. A person that does not have the Spirit of God is does not belong to Christ. And a person that does, and this is the whole context here, not only does he belong to Christ, but that's what he's getting at here. This is the resource that we have, the indwelling presence, the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So no matter where we're at, we don't have to go seek out some temple somewhere. Wherever we're at, we have the resource of the creator of the universe to deal with our situation. Sanctification is a process of living as if Christ lived this. Not only as if, yeah. But, mean, yeah. Yes. Now we need to act like it. Yes. And that's what sanctification living it out. process that's is. That's exactly, out. exactly. Why don't you close for us? Father God, we're just really grateful for you going to so much trouble and reveal to us how reveal to us what the truth is. Thank you for this lesson. We ask that you Sink these lessons deep so that it changes not only who we are, but how we do it. Amen. One thought here, there's power to live the Christian life, but that power is available only by walking in the Spirit. Otherwise, deadness. Now you know what deadness looks like.